Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I'm an author, a pastor, and a spiritual director. In the midst of uh, COVID-19, we tend to try and focus on one thing at a time. And this virus seems like it's the biggest thing to focus on. And yet there are existing problems and challenges, psychological, emotional, spiritual, sociological, that continue to go on. One of those challenges continues to be the conversation and happenings around race. What, there's, there's something in us that wants to, to fix that. There's also something in some people who want to say that it's not the problem that it looks like, that there isn't such a thing as racism. And yet that would be ignorant. And so what do we do? We need to listen to the voices of people who have been in this conversation and who see it from not only the cultural side, the political systemic side, but also the spiritual side, the side of us that pleads with God that this injustice should end. And one of those people, a fiery, powerful, committed, and yet deeply tender and passionate person is Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. Her work on reconciliation in the area of race has been going on for quite some time. And she has spoken and written into this conversation more uh, than most anybody that I know from a Christian perspective. And so our conversation today, my prayer is our conversation today unsettles you. I pray that you might hear a story and an origin in Dr. Brenda that would draw you to think differently about not only race, but about the way forward. And what does reconciliation really look like? So if that's not enough of a setup, I, uh, that's all I got. So let's get into this conversation today with my guest, Dr. Brenda Salter. Dr. Brenda, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for taking some time this morning. It's my joy to be with you. So we're, uh, you're in Seattle, I'm in Chicago. We're both in some some pretty heavy, dense pockets of COVID-19 stuff. I, I wonder, um, what, what have you been doing? What's, has there been a practice for you that during this whole stay-at-home navigate that's been really, really helpful and life-giving that you've been doing? Yeah, you know, some things you discover by accident, so it's not like I had this real formula for survival. Um, I work out a lot. It's been a part of my thing going to the gym. And so when the gym closed down, I was just like, oh, what what shall I do? And uh, so my daughter, before she went away to college, just begged her, my husband and I to get a dog. And so we did. And uh, for her. Now, she again has gone away to college, but I have a dog and her name is Bella. She's a schnoodle and she uh, she's eight years old now, but uh, she is puppy all the way still somewhere in her heart. And a walk is her love language. So I have walked more of this neighborhood. I have met more of my neighbors, even at a distance. I'm waving to people. Uh, and so I think this 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 regular rhythm of going for walks and looking at beauty and taking in um, the outdoors has been life-giving to me, literally life-giving. So it started as I got to walk the dog and it has become a practice that um, 
I look forward to. It's, it's beautiful to look at the flowers blooming and even in the midst of what feels like chaos and panic in so many places, it's just nice to slow down enough to listen to the birds outside. And mm -hmm. Seattle is a beautiful place to do that. So yeah. uh, I stumbled into a practice and I'm, I'm loving it. I'm hearing so many people echo that, that a lot of their saving graces or the practices that they've, they've been able to root down into have been practices of physical, very physical things, walking. Uh, my wife and I started doing yoga, you know, 240 somethings. I'm so glad we're not in a class. I don't want anybody else to see what's going on there. That's not helpful. Uh, but, you know, those physical things have, have rooted us down and have taught us how good it can be to, to keep your body engaged. And uh, I'm glad to live in a faith, too, that's starting to recover the importance of the body and Absolutely. the wisdom that our bodies have. So in this conversation, in our, in our podcast, I always love to get a bead on where people are. For, uh, as far as the discussion about wisdom is concerned. And so I, I usually do that with the same question at the beginning, which is if you were going to, from your perspective, begin to define the word wisdom, where would you start? Where's the beginning point for you? Yeah, um, not, to, not to jump into being super holy and religious, but growing up, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom right? And, um, and if you seek God, God will give you wisdom. So it feels to me that wisdom has something to do with this internal um, ability to see beyond the obvious and to have some understanding of what that means. And one opens themselves to um, receiving that from God. I love that because I think wisdom always, for all of us, wisdom has its roots in not only what we think, but also where we come from. It feels like wisdom is always rooted in a place. How did your, can you talk a bit about your, your growing up and your developing years and how, how that gave you this wisdom that you're carrying today? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. The older I get, the the wiser the people who raised me have become, you know? <laughs> I have a a sincere love and reverence for the black church. Um my elders, my forebearers, many of whom never went to college and um it's interesting because when you get to a certain level of notoriety or um um, popularity or just whatever in, in the world. So many people want to take credit for it. Oh, that's a, she graduated from such and such and oh yeah, you know, and I appreciate all of the things that polished me up. But the truth is I, I was raised in a Pentecostal church and with elders, both in my family and in my spiritual family, my parents, my, my aunts and uncles, who had wisdom and, um, and they understood the importance of passing on wisdom. So I would tell you that I respect and I revere in every opportunity I get to lift them up, to tell people how, how honored I am to come from them. 
Uh, I do, because when I went to seminary, if you said you came from the Black Pentecostal Church, people looked a bit askance with kind of, oh, yeah. And I'm here to tell you that everything that makes me special, everything that makes me good, anything that gives me an anointing, I got from them. And they passed on the wisdom of God that now makes me who I am today and gives me the insights that I have and the courage that I have. I can't say enough about them. And so um, uh, happy Mother's Day, Father's Day. I honor my elders. And I wish, especially in the middle of a pandemic, we had the opportunity to sit at the feet of people with wisdom, because we need them now more than ever. And of course, um, when we talk about, and especially as you talk about your elders, you're, you're talking about people who are speaking wisdom from a particular place, specifically a place that knows suffering, it knows prejudice, it knows segregation. How did you how did you receive that wisdom? And then when was the point where you realized that wisdom had a certain flavor to it? Yeah, I had to grow up enough to you know <laughs> respect it. Um, to I, I think one. The journey, and they used to say, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. And now I think I understand what they mean. The journey, you know, they talk about the hero's journey, and now I know that there is also a shero's journey. We, we go through our journeys, right? And it's in our journeys that we look back over our shoulder and, and we realize that all that was trying to be given to us at the time, we were too young and immature to understand how rich it was. But as we grew and as we went through our own process of maturation, we understood the value of the nuggets, the golden nuggets that they had given us. And now we're able to bring them out, use them, examine them, let them speak to us. So I think I had to grow up. I had to not be insecure because when I went to college and uh, as one of the first in my family to do so, and then when I went to seminary, uh, I was in white evangelical space and white evangelical space does not revere or hold in high esteem the black church. And so if I talked about the songs that we sang or the, the practices that we pursued in church, people looked at me as if they had to re-educate me. And because I was insecure, I, I succumbed to that sense that something was deficient about what I'd come with. And so at some point, I had to come to the conclusion, and you learn this over the journey, that what I have to bring and who formed me spiritually was as valuable, as credible as anything else I was learning. And those things did not have to be mutually exclusive. I could learn to bring them together. And the whole of it is what makes me who I am. But it gives me, my background gives me the ability to interrogate the lack of things that I did not receive in white evangelical space. Yeah. It's any of those, and I'm, and I'm totally stealing Shiro's journey, by the way. That's fantastic. <laughs> Joseph and Josephine Campbell, I see it now. Um, it, when, as you talk about that, I, I, I've, I really have a firm belief in the fact that any kind of new life that we see comes from crucifixion. You know, something dies in order for something new to come to life. As you came with your insecurities into that white evangelical space and now have this experience that as you pressed it out there, 
people responded in ways that said, you're wrong and you need to change. What, what had to die in you? What did you have to sort of crucify or execute in order to really embrace how you were brought up, your experience in the black church and how it not fit, but how, what your place was in that bigger, in that other conversation that you were uh, confronted with? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about living in this racialized society is that we've all, everybody has uh, been intoxicated or influenced by the same racial smog right? We all breathe it. It's not just in white people or people who born in the United States. Anyone who's grown up in this society, regardless of our racial backgrounds, we've all inhaled the same racial smog that has the same messages, both subliminal and overt, about who is smart, who is pretty, what what is right and what is wrong. And we all are influenced consciously or unconsciously by those messages. I was no exception. And so so my desire to be seen as smart, my desire to prove that I I could make it, it was a standard, it was a white standard that was measuring if I was okay enough, if I was pretty enough, if I was uh, gifted, uh, called, all of that, right? And so I did not realize how much that that was defining who I am or who I thought I was. So let me tell you a story. Um, I was, I I went to Fuller Seminary, love it, love it, love it. Thankful to God for my education, still a a firm believer in Fuller Seminary and in seminary education. Uh, I went to seminary because I knew I was called to preach. And that little Pentecostal church where I grew up in, they were the first people who told me that God had given me a calling to preach. I wanted to refine that. And so I went to seminary to do so. Um, I took my very first preaching class and um, uh, I had uh, moved from New Jersey to California, had never been that far away from home. Uh, My friends and I who had come to seminary from from other states all decided to go to Hollywood because we were going to see what Hollywood looked like. Ah! And um, I saw a prostitute, a, a teenage prostitute, a little girl. I didn't know she was a little girl until she turned around. She had on this big kind of blonde wig. But when she turned around, I could see her face. And I was like, like I, I could not speak. I was so moved by seeing this girl under this wig that I went home and I, I read in my Bible about Peter's mother who had been sick with a fever. And, and the text said they pleaded with him to, um, to heal her. And, and I preached a sermon. My very first sermon was called, Are You Pleading With Him? And I'm telling you, I preached my face off in that class. I was the only woman in that class. I was the only person of color in that class. And when I tell you I preached my heart out, I preached my complete heart out and meant every word. My, those guys in my class literally stood up and clapped. I'm, I believe if I would have given an altar call, hallelujah, somebody would have got saved that day. <laughs> no kidding. I got an A in delivery and I think it was a C maybe a D in in exegesis. Mm. And I didn't know what they wanted. I I could not imagine what else they wanted from me. Um, 
And so that started a three-year journey of me trying to figure out what they wanted more of me. And, uh, and I became excellent at exegetical research. And my final sermon was on Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And I was scared preaching the sermon, but I got an A. Huh. It wasn't until years later that I was invited to come back to Fuller. And um, this is a true, true story. And I was running late and uh, didn't have time to prepare a whole lot of stuff. I was at that time working as a, as a chaplain's assistant at Occidental College. And so when I got there, I scribbled a few notes on a piece of paper, put it inside a folder, sat down on this panel that was about gender equality and racial reconciliation. And they just asked me to share from, you know, whatever. And so I opened up my little folder with my bogus piece of paper in it. And it probably had maybe, I don't know, a good 10 notes on that piece of paper. And at some point, I didn't have anything else to say. And I was on this really impressive panel. I was sitting next to Dr. Bill Pinnell, who had been a mentor to me. And so I closed that folder and I just started speaking from my heart. And I talked about John chapter four, the woman at the well. I talked about the, the various cultural, theological uh, perspectives, sociological implications of that text. And when I tell you the same fire that happened at that very first sermon happened at that panel and people said, can we have your notes? Oh, your hermeneutical. Oh, your hermeneutical approach. And I thought, what hermeneutical approach? And that was the day that I reclaimed myself. Hallelujah. That was the day that Brenda found Brenda. And I went back to that young woman who had left that Pentecostal church who understood that the anointing of God is as important as all of the theological educational things that I'd learned at Fuller. That day they married themselves again. And that was what had to end. That had to die. That girl who was trying her best to prove I was smart, she had to die to her insecurities so that she could go back and reclaim the wisdom of the church that had formed her. And I've been mm. doing it ever since. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I would love to know what was on that scrap of paper though. That's, <laughs> I notice, um, and this is what my conversations with people spiritual formation is, is the area that I typically speak and write in. And, and, the journey of spiritual formation sometimes sounds like such an airy fairy kind of thing, but what you're talking about is, is the journey of formation. It's that it's a very human thing that's similar, you know, it's shared across races and languages and it's about finding acceptance. It's about knowing our identity and all of that bathed in the light of who God is and who he has said that we are. Um, so, but what I also see is that, when you add in the racial conversation, for me as a white evangelical male growing up, there was less cost for me to find my identity. Does that, do you think that's, does that match what you experienced? Was there a higher level of cost and expectation to the journey of you as a black woman in seminary in a white evangelical seminary, finding your way to recovering who you are? Oh, yeah, it still is. It still is. Because whoever gets to write 
the story and then define what character you get to play or not play really has the power to determine if you even get to be a part of the story. Mm. And if I offend someone by speaking my heart and being myself, they just write me out of the story. They don't have to invite me to be on their podcast. They don't have to invite me to speak at their conference. And even though um, they won't say it, they'll say things like, I'm not sure if she's a good fit. But that's really saying, we're not going to have you anymore. I've seen people's whole lives destroyed. Tom Skinner would be an example. I don't know if you know that name or remember him. But in the Mm. 70s, there was an evangelist called Tom Skinner. And Tom Skinner had been uh, a young um, gang member in New York City who converted to Christianity and became sort of a poster child for uh, evangelism. And, and he was the, one of the most powerful evangelists that you could ever imagine and became well-known in white evangelical circles. Moody Bible Institute, he had a radio program, etc. He preached all over the country, um, started the Tom Skinner and Associates. It was like the Billy Graham Associates, Tom Skinner was that in the black community. And the white evangelical community loved him because he converted to Christianity listening to a white evangelist who preached the gospel on Christian radio. Beautiful story, right? Right. Until at Urbana, uh, 1971, maybe, 72, somewhere back in there, Tom Skinner on that international stage. uh, For those who don't know, Urbana is a uh, triennial conference that's sponsored by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I used to be on staff with InterVarsity and love it to this day. But I can tell you when Tom Skinner stood on that platform and preached against racism and spoke for racial reconciliation, his ministry took a hit that was never able to be recovered from. I won't blame this on that. Tom Skinner died of cancer at some point. Uh, But I can tell you this, he was disinvited from every place that had him. His radio show was canceled. He wasn't invited to speak around the country as he was. He went back to being an itinerant minister from churches in Newark and New York, in New Jersey and uh, New New York. All of that to say, and I really mean this, when white evangelicals decide to destroy you, they'll never say, we're going to destroy you. They just kind of say things like, you know, we, someone said to me recently on Facebook, we liked you better when you just quoted Bible verses. Hmm. And it was a white man who said it. And I deleted him and I blocked him from coming back to my page because there is this sense that we tell you what the agenda is. And if you dare divert from that, We won't say that we're going to destroy your ministry, but in our hearts, we know that we will never have you back. And I'm not even sure if it's conscious. I mean this. I don't know if it's conscious that the decision is to destroy. It's just that we're going to have this on our terms, no matter what. And if you don't do it on our terms, we won't give you a platform to do it. And 
I know a bit of your work over the years, and so I can see what that's formed in you. And the words on, even on the front page of your website, words like prophetic and trailblazer are part of the work that you've been doing. When I hear the word prophetic, you know, I think of Elijah and Elisha and the passing of the mantle. And mantle is a heavy thing to carry. How, how have you? How have you been formed? in order to carry this prophetic trailblazing mantle that you've been carrying? Yeah. I don't know if I know the answer. Um, I love God. I'm not kidding. I love God. Um, that's the other good thing about the Pentecostal church. Conversion wasn't like a certain kind of conversion. You came to Jesus. <laughs> Mind, body, soul, and spirit. <laughs> and uh, I love God. I really do. It's not an act. It's not, I'm not faking it. I really do. Um, and so I think that, that God is real in my life. And I thank God because I'm not sure I could make it without God. I don't even want to try to imagine who I would be without God. I love God. And I'm grateful that God found me, rescued me, saved me and has made me whoever I am today. I'm grateful. I also love people, and I'm so grateful for the people who love me. I have friends in my life who have known me since I was a kid, and they love me. They love me before I had a doctorate degree. They love me before I wrote anything. They just love me. <laughs> and, and I'm friends with them and my family, you know? And so I have real relationships with real people who really love me for who I really am. They don't care about all the stuff. And so if all the stuff went away, they would still love me and they'd be as happy to see me <laughs> and as proud of me as they are right now. And I'm grateful for that. So I'm grateful for what I do. I'm grateful for what God allows me to um, influence. But I'm also grateful that I know the, the who I am and I know whose I am and I know who I belong to. And that gives me a confidence and a stability and a sense of um, rootedness. And so, you know, that scripture, um, and he or she shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth fruit in his or her season. My church used to quote that psalm every single Sunday. I know it by heart. Mm -hmm. And it means more to me now because I'm rooted in somebody. I'm rooted in something. I come from a community that owns me. I'm anchored in the faith that they gave me. And so I think that's what gives me who, I don't know, the fruit, fruitfulness that you all see comes from the rootedness of who I am. And I'm grateful to God for it. Yeah. It's, it's a necessary thing because uh, the, the other word that's associated with your work and your ministry is the word reconciliation. And I'm, I'm astounded a little bit because it feels like in in the white evangelical tradition, we've talked a lot about reconciliation to God. But the idea of reconciliation to each other is almost like a, if it happens, that's great. And if not, well, I mean, at least there's heaven when we die. And as I heard you talk about John 4, I thought about your book, uh, A Credible Witness, and then even Roadmap is about Roadmap to Reconciliation, the, the next, it's a new one, and 2.0 that's coming out, which is wonderful. It's all about you are talking about stepping into the middle of something. It's stepping into the middle of the conversation 
about reconciling with God and with each other, and specifically from a racial perspective. I'm just curious from your perspective, what is it that often gets missed that is just a complete non-starter for the process of reconciliation? What is it that we usually just blank on that totally puts the process out of whack? Um, Let me tell you why um, I wrote 2.0, Reconciliation, Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0. That 2.0 really matters because it really reflects the change in me. Um, So that that person who said, we liked you better when you just quoted Bible verses, it's because I don't just talk about the Bible. I used to believe, and this is what's missing, I used to believe that the problem was that Christians just didn't understand that the Bible called for both vertical and horizontal reconciliation, that yes, we're reconciled to God, but scripture also says that we ought to be reconciled to each other. And I thought that if I could be theologically rigorous enough um, uh, uh, intellectually insightful enough, right? Non-threatening enough, uh, right? Uh, that if I could be biblical enough, that that would cause people to know I had no hidden agenda. I was not bringing some social leftist political thing. I was really sincerely trying to call the church to be the church, right? So I didn't bring up other things. I didn't and bring up my positions on certain things or speak about things like immigration. I really wanted to talk about the Bible's call on the church to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And I didn't want anybody to think that I was somehow trying to use that as a smokescreen for something else. Well, I learned as a result of the election in 2016 that this is not just about the Bible that Christians could twist and see things differently that had nothing to do with scripture. And it broke my heart. I really don't plan, I'm not trying to be divisive at all to even bring that up. It broke my heart. That's my I statement. Because I realized that, and again, here's my Pentecostal background. When somebody was an adulterer, our church was an equal opportunity uh, judgmental church. <laughs> they just didn't have it. You couldn't be a deacon. You couldn't be, <laughs> you had to, you know what I mean? They, yeah. they called yeah. for a certain level of morality and they expected it of all of us. And, they, and you couldn't wiggle your way around it. They would, they would allow you to repent for sure, but then they would disciple you and help you to live into a different lifestyle and they would not excuse it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Because of that, I noticed how much hypocrisy and complicity was in making excuses for immoral behavior right in front of our faces. That mm. bugged me. And it made me understand that this wasn't about the Bible. I was like, oh, oh, I see. <laughs> it is now crystal clear to me that this is not about the faith. This is about something else. And that's what's missing, my brother. We have got to name the thing under the thing because we've Mm -hmm. been hiding under a smoke screen about Christianity. 
No, 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 no. This is about control. It's about supremacy. It's about being in power. And we need to name it for what it is. That's why he said, oh, we liked you better when you just quoted Bible verses. And I thought to myself, I bet you did. Because then you could have a black speaker come and you could tolerate me preaching my little heart out. And, and, and you could hear me be prophetic as long as I didn't put my finger on the systemic systems, the, the, the sin that's ruining people's lives and not call you accountable to that. And if that's what you wanted, well, I'm not gonna do that anymore. That's what's had to change. And I am convinced that without talking about what has to be repaired, we're not talking about reconciliation. We're having a kumbaya fest that makes us feel better because we sing songs in Spanish and eat with chopsticks. And I am through with it. Absolutely done. <laughs> Come on. Oh my goodness. I'm going to stop asking questions. Just give you a text and say, let's go. Let's go. I, as you talk about that systemic sin, I, I think that's a place I've noticed where people get hung up is the difference, the idea that there is such a thing as personal, you know, a person who says, and go, I grew up in the South, and so I have done a lot of revisiting my own history and seeing things from this side and from what I know about the story of Black Americans, and I'm just, it's just haunting in some ways. So I'm, I'm revisiting this, but the idea, the idea of a person can look at you and say, well, I don't, I don't hate a person of another color and somehow deduce that racism isn't really happening is to miss that systemic. So as you diagnose that in the work that you do in reconciliation, what are some of the symptoms you see of that, that systemic sin, that it isn't people just, you know, one-on-one hating someone, but that there is a system underneath it all that is itself influenced by dark and destructive, destructive things. Yeah, there's two ways I can answer that. And so that people listening to this podcast will understand that, as I said earlier, we've all inhaled the same racial smog. And we all have to, one, acknowledge that that's true, and then all begin the process of trying to detox ourselves as much as we can of what's been in, ingested into our systems. I'm also included in that. So anybody who knows me knows that I love Latino people. I'm learning to speak Spanish. I can speak Spanish, but not fluently. So I say it all the time. Yo aprendiendo, hablo español. And uh, some friends called me on it and said, you know, there are places where people speak Spanish all day long. And so this, that I want to learn Spanish thing, get, work on it then. If that's what you really say you mean, then let's do it, right? So I went to Costa Rica for a summer to immerse myself in language schools so that I could try to become fluent. Prior to going, I was asked if I would go to Washington, D.C. to advocate on immigration reform. And I wasn't sure if I was going to do it or not. In fact, I was pretty certain I wasn't because I did not feel like I knew enough about immigration. I didn't feel like I was a person who knew much about those systemic issues, the policies. And I was afraid to go to Congress and lobby on something that I didn't know much about, right? So I'm in Costa Rica. I spent a whole summer and now I'm on my way back home. And I think the invitation to go to Congress with the group that was asking me to go on this evangelical roundtable sponsored by Sojourners uh, and, and International Justice Mission, uh, 
was going to come up soon after I returned back to the United States. Now, this literally happened. I'm coming back through customs to into the United States, and I notice that there's two lines, one for U.S. citizens and Canadians, and another for non-residents. That's exactly what the sign said. So I'm in my lane, and I'm looking around at both of the various lines coming back into the country, and both had people from, it looked like every tribe and nation. It was diversity in the line that said U.S. citizens and Canadians, and there was diversity in the lines that said non-residents. And I thought this thought in my head. I thought, huh, we, we've already got enough diversity. And that thought, I felt like the Holy Spirit right there in that customs line kind of checked me and, and kind of said, huh, you might want to watch your scarcity thinking. So now I'm having a private moment in customs with God. <laughs> and people have had those. It's usually just them trying to keep their sanity. This is a different one altogether. Different one altogether. And I felt like the Holy Spirit began like asking questions. Do you believe I have enough for everybody? And in my mind, I thought, yes, Lord. Do you believe that I want for everyone else what I want for you? Yes, Lord. And then I heard this, you can't say you love people and not care about the policies that impact those people. And I realized that if I keep saying I love Latino people, and now I'm looking around assuming that there's enough diversity in our country and we don't need to let other people in, it's the same kind of scarcity thinking that if taken to its full extreme is what builds walls and says, keep them out. It was in that moment that I knew I was going to go to Congress and I was going to lobby for immigration reform because our system is broken. And I truly believe that you can't say you love people and not care about the policies that impact those people, period. Yeah. I love that too, because it's, it emphasizes something that I've always loved about Dallas Willard was his insistence that we become the kind of people who do what Jesus taught. And there's a, there's, a, there's a building of that to say, I think a lot of people fail at work that is important to racial reconciliation because they don't become the kind of people who love people who are different from them. That to me feels like a very key, key movement. It, from a perspective of, of reconciliation, what does it take in a person, as you've been doing this work and helping people have these conversations, what does it take in the heart of a person? What, what has to shift for this to even start in earnest? Great question. I think it takes a catalytic event. So in Roadmap, the first version, that, that's where I get the most traction. People talk to me more about that than anything, I think, is this notion, one, that I define what reconciliation is because Christians don't tend to have a, even a common understanding or definition of the thing. So we're pursuing something that we don't even have a common understanding of right? Yeah, and yeah. then secondly, we don't know what it looks like, which is why I, wrote mo why I wrote that book. I felt like somebody has got to do the work of figuring out how do you even know you're doing reconciliation, 
right? So that's what the whole purpose was for. But I then talked about what does it take for somebody to embark on the journey of reconciliation? And generally, it's a catalytic event. And so, you know, when we were in high school or so, we learned about catalysts that, that you know, I wasn't the best chemistry or biology student, but I got the general idea that something had to be a catalyst to start something, right? And generally, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's violent, you know? You see the, the solution start to bubble or, you know, whatever happens, that catalyst speeds something up or it initiates it. And generally, they are things we don't anticipate and they hurt. You know, and so I think that people generally can stay distant from it until something is so undeniably painful and real that they have to say, oh, my God. And then for the first time, they realize, oh, this is not just like a every now and then case. This happens for real. I know this. And now, even if if. If I, if it didn't happen directly to me, it happened to someone I know, or it happened someplace close by, it's become more real to me. I can't ignore it. I can't assume that, you know, I can justify why that happened, right? And so, for example, I have friends who are runners, and that young man who just uh, was killed uh, uh, because he was on a jog and stopped to look in a building under construction and then kept jogging, they understand as joggers how many times people have jogged and seen something in their neighborhood and thought, oh, wow, they're, they're, you know, they're making progress on this, you know? So Ahmad was a, a guy, a black guy jogging who saw a house that was under construction and probably wondered what was going on and how far they'd come. Maybe someday was going to be an architect. He was 25 years old. My son is 30. Hmm. My son jogs. He told me how proud he is that during this pandemic that he's gotten back and running again. But I remember when he was on a track team. Do you see that when I see that guy jogging, I don't just see a guy jogging. I see my son. And now I have friends who are not African-American, not black people, but they are runners who relate to what it is to simply go out for a jog and can imagine that someone would see them as a threat and shoot them in the street. That's catalytic. And for yeah. them, I know people running all over this country who ran 2.23 miles simply to stand in solidarity to say that shouldn't happen to anybody. And I can almost guarantee you if I was white, it would not have happened to me. That's what it takes. We need more people who care enough to imagine that if that was their kid, would they even imagine that happening to them? I can't imagine, but I'm scared to death now when my kid, who is proud that he is actually working out, now I'm scared for him to go running. That should not be. Yeah. That's what it feels like to give a damn. And that's what I'm calling people to do. Christians have got to stop imagining that somebody deserved to be shot in the street, especially when you see white people with AK-47s going into government buildings in broad daylight and nothing happens to them. Mm 
If people don't see that as a discrepancy and it's hypocrisy, then that bothers me. And that's why the racial reconciliation conversation is not being had in churches. We cannot keep playing it both ways. We cannot justify as one person being shot to death and other people with full-blown assault weapons living to talk about it and walk away without any retribution whatsoever, not justice. Yeah. Wow. And those, if you're listening and you don't know the story we're talking about, uh, Ahmaud Arbery was out for a jog in... um, and was seen as a threat by a couple of not police officers, uh, just citizens who had firearms and, and shot him to death. And the catalytic part of that, the heartbreaking part for me is we are in, he was sadly, and I, I even don't want to say this, but Ahmad was one of many should have been catalytic events. There've been so many people who have been shot and killed for a variety of reasons. And I hear sometimes the, the reason of, I don't want to get, we shouldn't get political in the church. And I, I, I seem to, I want to point out to people that the root of the word politics is the word polis, which is of the people. I mean, there is no politics without people. And I think we forget that, and that reconciliation is a political thing. Uh, because you can't, you can't bring people back together if policies are, are there to separate them. How do you, as a prophetic voice within Christian communities, also do that work that you're talking about in D.C. of advocating for policy change? How do you hold those two things in tension, especially when there's so many communities that want to pull them apart? Yeah, I think that day that I was in that line coming home from Costa Rica, it changed me. I just know that you're right. The policy, the people and the policies that impact them matter. But I have people in my life who I have personal relationships with, who I care for. You see, when people can dismiss it, it tells me that you don't have anybody in your life for whom that could have been a real thing. You know, so now that we're in this pandemic and Asian American people are being racialized and treated with disrespect and stereotypical behavior, uh, Chinese restaurants that are not being frequented, Chinese or Asian people who are not Chinese are being accosted in the street. There was a woman here in the Seattle area who went into a store to purchase something and a white woman went up to her and yelled at her in the middle of the store asking her, what are you doing here? Right. And and then uh, um, telling her, go home. I I have friends. My daughter's godparents are Korean. Phyllis and, and, and Peter Cha, they're my lifelong friends. They're kids. Nathaniel and Elaine, they're my god kids. I love them. And so when I see Asian American people, I don't just see Asian people. I see Nathaniel and I see Elaine and I see Gail and I see Aaron and I see, I, I have people in my life for whom this is not metaphorical. This is real. And so I would say to every person listening to this podcast, it's, the systems won't bother you if you don't have anybody in your life that those systems could have 
been applied to. If you don't know anybody for whom that could have been their kid, then that's part of the problem because the policy won't matter if you don't know people that those policies could have impacted. So I care about those policies because I know people that those policies would impact. I care about my Asian American friends and I don't believe that anybody should be afraid to go in a grocery store and be yelled at and told to go home with that type of disrespect. I used to wonder, I really wondered when I was younger, how do we allow people in this country to put into concentration camps? I am no longer confused. I see exactly hmm. how the fear can, can so infiltrate a society that we justify the kind of stuff that happened where now parents, we just celebrated uh, Mother's Day in this country and, and parents still who had their children taken from them at the border don't know where they are. You see, hmm. I care about that. I know yeah. exactly where my children are, but I can imagine as a mother how it would be to not know after a year where my kid is. Now, I'm saying these stories like this because I can imagine that we're talking to people who have kids. And I know what it's like to be in the grocery store and my toddler once walked away from me when I was, my back was turned. And in that second, when I turned around to look for her and couldn't find her, I was beyond myself. And so if you can imagine how you would feel in a grocery store for a few minutes, not being able to find your child, if now you could just extrapolate that and imagine what it would feel like for a year to not know where they put your child, who has him or her, is she okay? Is anybody hurting her? That's why we care. Do you see? Immigration is not about keep them out. Yes, we have to figure out a way to do it wisely and sensibly, but some mother can't find her daughter. And we should all care about that. Mm. There are kids yeah. in Flint, Michigan today who drank poison water and they're black and brown kids and they're gonna be brain damaged and they're not gonna do well in school. And then they're going to become discipline problems. And then they're going to get in the juvenile uh, uh, delinquent system. And then they're going to go to jail. And then we're going to say that they were bad apples. I care about that. And so those are the catalytic things I'm asking people to, to connect human beings to. But you're not going to care about them unless it happens to you or someone that you know. That's what mobilizes us to do differently in the church. Yeah. It's so much, so much of, uh, such a needed, so much in this that's a needed conversation. And we, I feel like in this time, we, we actually have some time. We have different time. <laughs> we, we aren't, the expectations we have and the, the stresses of trying to figure out what life is going to look like as the country reopens, but there's also time for us to, to think about things differently. I know that the book is, I want people to read Roadmap to Reconciliation, I really do, but I'd love to hear, is there a thought that you could offer people as we're all sort of relationally handicapped right now? Uh, unless I can reach out to somebody on, on social media or on Zoom, it, it's hard for me to, 
to be in contact with my neighbors. Is there a, a thought that you'd like to just put in the hands of people who are listening to this that would encourage them towards this this bigger story of reconciliation? Yeah, I guess I want to say, first of all, to everybody who's listened to this podcast, I thank you so very much for hearing my heart. And um, I'm usually not this this direct. Honestly, I'm, um, um, I think I'm scared. I think I'm scared for our country. I think I'm scared for um, the generation coming behind us. I think I'm scared for the church. When I said I love God, I really do. And I, I want to represent God well. I want the church to represent God well. And I know there are so many people who in this pandemic are scared. And so I believe that the church is the saving grace of the world. I believe that if we were ever truly going to be the church, we're living in the time now when we can't go to church. And it's our opportunity to demonstrate that it's not the buildings that we go to, that it's not the hymn books that we hold in our hands. It's the lives that we live. It's the way we embody Jesus in the very neighborhoods that we live, right? And so as much as I have been um, kind of strong in my voice, I also want you to hear my tender side that says I love us. I love the church. I think that the world needs us now more than they ever have. And the Bible is right. I believe it could literally change the world if we ever lived the way scripture calls us to. And so I think this is our moment, church. I think this is an opportunity for us to point in a different direction that is not um, defined by fear. And so if I could leave us with the scripture, it would be this. We have not been given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And to the degree that we can pursue that and be that, model that, embody that in our neighborhoods, in the places where people see us, I pray that the people who watch us live, not perfectly, but sincerely, credibly, that they would see our good works, our attempts at being the people of God on mission for the kingdom of God, and they would glorify God in heaven. That would be a beautiful thing to come out of a really hard time. Um, and I hope we would take it on. Thank you so much for time. And time is a precious thing. Thank you for sharing time with us. And I got to tell you from the bottom of my heart, I'm, I'm very glad and I'm very thankful that you stopped just quoting the Bible, that you had more to say than that. And so keep, keep doing that. We need it. I need it. I've learned and grown in my wisdom from today. And I know the people listening have too. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. It's been my pleasure. I really want to ask all of us after this conversation is where did you find yourself stirred? Where did you find yourself irritated? There's this thing with restlessness I've been working with lately that I believe a lot of times there is an irritated space that we are placed in. Either we choose to go there or life puts us there and we have some options in that space. We can either try to fix the situation 
we can forget the situation, believe that it doesn't exist, it isn't what it looks like. But ultimately, the only way that really shapes us and forms us in healthy ways is to follow it and see where it leads. So after this, listening to this podcast, I want to invite you to just explore where did you feel irritated and restless? Where did you feel stirred by Dr. Brenda's words? Was there something she said that took you into a space in your heart and your soul that said, there's something I need to do about this? Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil is a dynamic speaker. As you can tell, she's an author, a professor. She's a thought leader with over 30 years of experience in the Ministry of Reconciliation. Her books, Roadmap to Reconciliation and A Credible Witness, and also the upcoming book, Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0, are fantastic primers on how people who follow Jesus can also follow the way of racial reconciliation. Uh, She is an associate professor of reconciliation studies at Seattle Pacific University, and she also serves on the pastoral staff at Quest Church in Seattle. You can find more information about her in the show notes, where you can find her website and other links to things that she has done. Thank you for listening. Uh, If you're listening on my website streaming, thank you for that. If you're listening on iTunes, make sure you subscribe and rate the podcast. If you're listening on Spotify, thank you so very much. I would encourage you to go ahead and grab one of Dr. Dr. Brenda's books. I think you'll be bettered for it. I think it will carry this conversation forward. And so my prayer is that you begin to seek out ways of doing reconciliation in your own space, in your own world, that you wrestle with the hard questions that you start to tell the truth, even if it becomes uncomfortable, that we all, I'm pointing the finger at me to begin to tell the truth, even when it's uncomfortable. And so until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends.